I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Planes go up. Planes go down. What planes don't do is just vanish off the face of the earth. Today, we're talking to director Louise Malkinson. Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 was supposed to be on a routine trip, a red-eye to Beijing with 239 people on board. But shortly after takeoff, MH370 vanished from radar screens for good. The shocking disappearance of a commercial airliner made international headlines, sparked riots, and generated a global search for answers that never came. MH370, The Plane That Disappeared, explores three of the most contentious theories about the plane's disappearance. Did the pilot intentionally veer off his course, sailing over the Indian Ocean till he ran out of fuel? Did hijackers commandeer the aircraft as part of a Russian propaganda campaign? Or did the plane carry sensitive cargo that forced the U.S. military to shoot it down? Journalists, family members, and ordinary people hope to answer the question, what happened to MH370, the plane that disappeared? We need to show that a plane can't just disappear. We owe them the proof. We owe them the explanation. We owe them that closure. And I'm joined by director Louise Malkinson. Louise, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, really nice to be here. Thank you. Louise, what was it that made you want to explore the case of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370? The fact that we didn't know what happened or the fact that there are people who believe they do know what happened? Well, I think for me, um, you know, I, rem- I remember uh, in 2014 when the, when the flight went missing um, and I knew bits about the story, but I didn't know, I didn't really know what happened. I, you know, I didn't know whether they'd even found the plane. Um, and I think the more I started to look into the story, the more um, the fact that there was so little information and the fact that they hadn't found the plane, that was a real uh, motivation for me to get involved in and, um, you know, to, to take the project on. I'm curious, you spoke with several family members, uh, several government officials too, but I'm curious, the family members in particular, why were they eager to speak with you and uh, be a part of this documentary? I think, you know, for me, the next of kin, the family members, the people who lost people on that flight, they are the heart of this story. And, you know, when I first started to talk to them, their biggest fear is that people forget about this and that people don't talk about MH370. And we're coming up to nine years now since that plane went missing. And I think they want to be heard. They want people to keep talking about it. And that was the biggest drive for all of them. And um, that's what keeps them going now. And I think that it's really important that people do keep talking about MH370. So the timeline for takeoff uh, to 1.22 p.m., it seemed like a, a rather routine 
late night departure, right? This this overnight flight? That's right. Yeah, it was, as I said, a, a, it, it was a regular red-eye flight between Kuala Lumpur and Beijing. You know, one of those flights, you know, we've all taken flights late at night, haven't we? You know, the airports are quiet. You know, you don't really want to be traveling at that time. So it's just a case of getting on board and settling down. And then, you know, most of the time people would try and sleep before they arrived at their destination, which would be Beijing at dawn. So a lot has been made of the pilot sign-off, and some believe there's something in the way he says goodnight. And I'm wondering, do you hear anything in that message that piques your interest, or is it just another indication of how thoroughly examined every single moment of evidence we have around this flight is? Yeah, I mean, as you say, every tiny little detail has been examined, um, the minutiae of everything. And, you know, for me, it's just a normal sign-off. I can't see anything different in it other than that. Captain Zahari signs off with his now infamous goodnight. I'm, uh, I'm not an aviation expert, so I wouldn't necessarily know what the, what those sign-offs are normally like. But, um, you know, he, he sounded quite calm and normal at that time. You know, it just appeared to be a normal sign-off. So for some reason at this point, the plane disappeared from radar and never made contact with air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh City. Early on, did the Vietnamese assume the pilot just hadn't switched radio frequencies to make contact or were they in emergency mode right away? I think what's quite interesting about the specific area that the flight went missing was um, the plane went dark as the plane passed between Malaysian airspace into Vietnamese airspace. And it's almost a sort of... um, a black hole and, and it's over the sea. So there's quite often a small delay between the, the, the sign off between one airspace and then the other airspace picking it up. And I think there was definitely a delay in, in what happened, but it's interesting that the plane went dark at that particular time when the aircraft was passing between the two airspaces and where there would be expected to be some delay between that crossover. It's interesting because It seemed like there was that delay. And I'm wondering, at what point was there some reaction back in Kuala Lumpur? Do you have an understanding of how much time there was that passed between when the plane went went dark and when the alarm kind of went up back there? Yeah, and I think that there, there was definitely a delay there. And that was a, you know, that was something that, um, you know, was was looked into at the time. And I think I'd have to check, but I think it was about 20 minutes um, went yeah. by before um, the alarm was raised or that they actually tried to make contact with the aeroplane. And um, it shouldn't it shouldn't have been that long. So it was presumed that Flight 370 continued on its path north over the South China Sea. But later they learned military radar spotted the plane turning to the west back over Malaysia. It banks again and seems to be heading to the Indian Ocean. Why do you think it took so long for that military radar information to get out? This is another one of those questions with this um, story, and um, it's something that's been examined. Um, you know, why why was the plane not seen immediately doing that turn, and why were those? You know, the, why has the radar images not been presented? It's still a point of discussion around all of this. They would say that they weren't monitoring it in real time, I think. Um, but actually, um, you know, that's one of the questions that a lot of people have and that the, the, the relatives have is that they would like, you know, they wanted some sort of proof of the radar to show that the plane had turned back. 
That's a big theme here in the documentary is we see the relatives, especially at that hotel where they were all sort of corralled when the plane was missing uh, and the communication with the passengers' families during the time, especially in the, these initial days of the search, they were extremely distraught, right? The lack of transparency with government officials and with the airline itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you cannot imagine anything worse. You know, you were waiting for that plane to land at six in the morning and it doesn't turn up. And then you have no answers. You, know, you, you everybody was taken to a to to a hotel either in Kuala Lumpur or Beijing, but they didn't have any information, and it was torturous for the families. Here in Beijing, hundreds of family members and friends of the passengers on board have gathered in the hotel. They are growing increasingly frustrated by the lack of information about their loved ones. In the series, we do talk to the crisis coordinator, the former crisis coordinator of Malaysian Airlines and the former head of civil aviation. You know, and they will both say, you know, they they were prepared for a airline disaster. They were they were prepared for crashes, but they'd never had a plane go missing before. So, you know, everybody was in this world where there, there just wasn't any information. And for the loved ones at that time, it must have just been absolutely horrific. That was what made me curious, because obviously this becomes a huge international story. And with today's news cycles, even back in 2014, the media, you know, it takes a news story like this and very quickly moves on to the next thing, even when a story is is really big. You know, I'm thinking right now today of, of that earthquake in Turkey, for example. Why do you think the coverage was so persistent around this flight everywhere in the world? Was it because it was a mystery and it was just missing? Yeah, it's extraordinary, um, the level of media attention and, and, as you say, how long that went on for. Um, I think that C- CNN ran it 24 hours a day on their news networks and it was across social media and you know everybody was gripped to the unfolding situation and I think you know part of that was that it was a mystery uh, you know we nobody had any information it was an international story Malaysian officials now say the plane was hundreds of miles off course and flying in the wrong direction when last tracked Here are the latest developments. It apparently turned the opposite direction and flew to the Malacca Strait. The plane may have flown now for more than an hour after... You know, we are all affected by flight. That's, you know, we we all fly on airplanes all the time. And it's, you know, it's it's a fear, isn't it? And I think, you know, all of those things put together just meant that people were completely captivated by it from the very beginning. So around the world, people began to do their own investigations into where the plane could have gone. First, can you tell me what Tomnod was and how people were using that? Tomnod was a crowdsourcing platform. And um, what uh, the way that worked was that um, you could get involved in looking for the plane simply by logging onto your computer. And then you would be given um, satellite images of areas that were being searched. And the idea was that you would search those satellite images yourself and try and find bits of debris or anything that was out of the ordinary and then report that back to Tomnod. So people all across the world were involved with the Tomnod search. So I know you interviewed a Florida woman who firmly believes that she spotted the wreckage in the South China Sea. And I'm wondering, how likely is it that 
anyone can see something 10,000 feet <laughs> below the surface of the ocean from a satellite image. Because I know there are those overlays of the you know little sketches of the plane fuselage over. I'm curious what you think of her story. The Tom Lodd thing is really interesting because, as you say, how do you um, how do you know that what you're what you're looking for? Or, and I mean, for me, I would I, I used to think, well, how do you know that's not a cloud or a wave formation or something? And I think there was a lot of people that were really interested in in the Tom Nod platform and, and what they were finding. And I think what's quite interesting is when you when you look at the scale of some of these things. So quite often, what would look like a um, you know just a speck of of a white, you know, when 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 you scaled it up, you realised that it was potentially the size of a basketball pitch or something. And so you know when you kind of look at it like that, there's certain things that you think, well, if it isn't a cloud and it isn't, you know, a wave and but it's that big, then then what is it, you know? But I do think that, you know, quite a lot of the time it's so with 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 the images, how you decipher that that is a piece of aeroplane wreckage, for instance, I you know, it's it would be very, very hard to tell. So there are many theories as to what happened to MH370, and you present probably the three most prevalent ones. Um, The first is the theory that the pilot deliberately crashed the plane. Since he's the only one who could change the course of the aircraft and switch off its communications, it seems like this is the most probable cause, to most people anyway, right? I mean, I think there's been an awful lot of, um, you know, there, there's so many, there's a myriad of theories out there. Um, I think we set out in the series, you know, there are only certain ways that all of the communications on a f- plane could go dark at the same time. And one of those is that somebody on that aeroplane turned everything off. Um, and the fact that, you know, the plane maneuvered and then flew on. He had wound up on this straight beeline into the southern Indian Ocean in order to end his life and to murder more than 200 other human beings. I think what's interesting is when, you know, there's still so many questions that haven't been answered, though. And I think, you know, looking at, for instance, you know, Florence Deschange would say that, um, you know, she's done a lot of background checks on Sahari, the captain, and so part of her question, part, part of Florence's questioning is, is why would somebody do this? Who is the man that could do this? And that was, you know, something that she, she looked at um, in a lot of detail and then became part of her, the basis for her theory, because she didn't believe that he, that this man was capable of doing that. I do want to get to her theory in a second, but I do want to talk about one of the pieces of evidence that people point to with Sahari, which is that home flight simulator he has um, where there was a virtual trip that he, I guess, had programmed in or searched for that was similar to the flight of MH370, the U-turn over the peninsula, then a straight line over the Indian Ocean until it runs out of fuel. He didn't actually fly that simulation. He just mapped the route out. And journalist Jeff Wise dismisses this, saying, you know, you can see what you want to see. He didn't actually fly into the southern Indian Ocean. He just put it in the southern Indian Ocean, actually hundreds of miles away from the search area. So... As with anything in this case, 
you can see what you want to see. And I think the counter argument to that is to say that, you know, if I if my husband is found murdered and you found a search on my computer that said, how do I murder my husband? You can see what you want to see, of course, in any in any of this kind of evidence. But there's a lot of, as you said, narrative counter narrative here. And if somebody is a pilot on a plane that crashes, you can find what you want to find. But that is a compelling detail. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the flight simulator is something that people talk about a lot. And with this story, there's a lot of complicated data that's been examined and people have looked at and they've kind of presented in certain ways. And it is very complicated. And um, I think Mike Exner says in the in the series, and it's it's important is that, you know, on its own, you know, the flight simulator doesn't really tell you anything. But as part of all the other information that they have, it becomes, you know, an, another piece of evidence that they believe um, points to the fact that the plane ended up in the South Southern Indian Ocean. So, as I mentioned, journalist Jeff Wise, aviation journalist, covered this story for a long time and wrote a lot about it, talked a lot about it. And one of the theories that he put forth was was that the plane could potentially have been hijacked. How do people perceive him in the wake of him talking and writing about this particular theory? As again, as 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 you see in the series, you know Jeff started off um, as one of the kind of first members of the independent group, which was a group of people that were you know came together on the internet to try and help. So there was pilots, aviation journalists, scientists. So when Jeff changed his mind and when he kind of did a one eighty on his theory and he laid out what he thought. Um, he, as he says, he knew there was going to be a backlash from that, and there was. I was correct in thinking that I would get a frosty reception from some quarters. The independent group, which had staked its reputation on the idea that the plane went south, did not want to brook any opposition from me. They kicked me out. He was thrown out of the IG group and... You know, a lot of people thought that what he was posing was, uh, you know, extraordinary. And as he says on the series, you know, he talks about the fact that he was like lumbered in with the Loch Ness Monster and things like that. And I think one of the things is, and, you know, part of this series is, you know, it's, it's about obsession and it's about how with a lack of answers, with, a, with no information, people join the dots and fill the void. So I think, you know, Jeff's a perfect example of how some of that that has happened. And he will tell you that he went mad with it. But what he but him and Florence, I think they both highlight questions that have still not been answered. Yeah. And we should mention Jeff Wise is a mainstream aviation journalist, has written for a lot of big publications before and since MH370. Um, But he does talk about this motive behind this potential Russian hijacking being to to divert attention from the Russian invasion of Crimea. He lays out this very elaborate scenario with pulling up of the carpet. Down in the hatch, the Russian is surrounded by banks of computers. He's in the nerve center of the airplane, the electronic brain. He plugs into the computer of the plane's flight control system. It does seem like a very elaborate uh, way to make a plane disappear to divert attention from an invasion of a country that people are probably going to notice is being invaded anyway, right? And I think when Jeff did put his theory out there, you know, that was the response that a lot of, that he got back from a lot of people. And 
you know, as I said, Jeff is the one would be the first person to tell you that he went down rabbit holes with this and he, you know, became obsessed. And, you know, he was, you know, he says, I think in, uh, a journalist in the in the film says to him, you know, do you believe this? And he says, you know, it's it's not that I believe it, but it's a it's 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 hypothesis that I've put together. And I think, you know, there are elements, the, the, the things that, that, you know, Jeff, as I said, questions that Jeff's posing, there's things that he would, you know, that he's saying that things that, that haven't been answered. So we sort of come back to this point where with a lot of this, if the answers were there, if we knew more, then we might not have some of the more wilder theories that are out there. Yeah. So we did mention French journalist Florence Deschangy. She brings forth the third most prevalent theory, which is the plane was intercepted by the American military. And as horrible as it may seem, they still need to stop the plane and its precious cargo to arrive in Beijing. So either through a missile strike or a mid-air collision, MH370 met its fate. That doesn't necessarily square with the radar and satellite evidence um, of that plane heading the other way, right? Well, what Florence will say is that there is never, there has never been any proof. There's never, there isn't the radar evidence proof. There's no, there's, you know, I think she says that there's, you know, in the series, there's, the plane is supposed to have flown over five different airspaces and not one of those countries have ever been able to produce any solid evidence that the plane was there. Uh, yeah, she, her, her, the, the basis of her theory is that the plane didn't turn. Mm. And there is some somewhat of a dispute about that data, right? I mean, the, the company says their data is solid. Uh, the IG group says that data is solid, but there are others who say that it isn't. Well, um, you know, Je uh, Florence, for example, she 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 doesn't believe in the data. Uh, Jeff, for instance, believes that the data potentially was tampered with. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that the satellite communication system was in contact with the satellite above the um, above the Indian Ocean, and so they were these series of handshake pings, um, which enabled Inmarsat, the British company, to be able to do some very very complex mathematics and work out that the plane had flown on for seven hours and it was it had gone on one of these two arcs, whether that uh, north or south. And, you know, uh, with further investigation, they believed, they, they came to the conclusion that the plane had actually gone south into the South Indian Ocean. And if I understand it correctly, Florence's theory is based on the idea that there was some cargo on the plane that uh, the United States didn't want to land in China, correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she believes that, 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 that there was potentially something on that plane that was um, extremely sensitive and that um, shouldn't get into the hands of the wrong people. And so potentially that that was a, a reason why the plane didn't make it to its final destination. Hmm. Now, you may not be willing to answer this question, and it is okay if you're not, but I'm wondering if all the theories that you came across, if there's one that, you know, you think either statistically or just your gut tells you might be the most likely, or if you don't have an opinion on that at all, that's also okay. I mean, I think, you know, I think what's fascinating about the story is that, you know, uh, and, and the process for me of making this is that, you know, you would hear all these different theories and you'd go certain you know you get to a certain point with some of them and you'd think yeah that actually makes sense I you know I can see that there's 
there's a there's a question behind that and then why did that happen but then you get to a certain point and you think oh, no actually that doesn't make any sense I could that couldn't possibly be right I think there's 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 theories that are definitely harder to hold on to um and there's you know there's there's evidence out there that points to the fact that the plane ended up in the South Indian Ocean so I think you know I think what would be interesting is to see what people think when they watch the series I think you know I, I come back to this thing again which is that there are still so many unanswered questions and I think if you were the next of kin of anyone on that flight the most important thing is that that we find the plane and that those that some of those questions are answered. One of the things I think you do in your documentary really well is demonstrate how hard it is to search an ocean for a plane because many people conclude that because they weren't able to find the plane in the Indian Ocean then it's not in the Indian Ocean, right? But even if you have a section of an ocean, uh searching for a plane in the ocean is not in a really a doable thing, right? Uh, I mean I, I think I think it's it's hard for anyone to comprehend the area that we're talking about in terms of ha- searching for this plane. It's one of the most remote locations in the planet. It's from the deepest ocean, and it's not Peter Foley who um, was in charge of the search in the South Indian Ocean for the Australian Transport Bureau. He. You know, he explains it like it's it's like the Grand Canyon down there. You know, it's certainly not a flat seabed where you could just put your sonar over and, and, and locate the plane. You know, I tried to reassure them that we were doing everything we possibly could to find the aircraft and, and bring their loved ones home. So we just needed to persevere. We needed to continue. The conditions are horrific. The, the task that those people had was extraordinary. And, you know, there are situations where people, they've searched for wreckage of, you know, ships before and because they've been down a, in, in a canyon or a gully, it's been missed. So I think, you know, the, the area that they had to search, um, you know, we, you can't begin to imagine how difficult that was. In 2017, a piece of a 777's wing washed up on an island more than 2,000 miles west of the search area. Several of the family members you talked to said their first thought was that the debris was deliberately placed there. And I'm wondering why you think that that's where their minds went. I don't think we can ever imagine the trauma that the next of kin have gone through with this. And, you know, they'd had over a year of absolutely nothing and I think, you know, sort of ambiguous losses are really complex trauma. And, you know, people will say that, you know, your mind will go back and forth between the reality and then the sort of hope that they're going to, that you might see your loved one again. And I think not having anything for all that time and then something happening like the debris washing up on um, reunion, it was like it was happening again. Um, and I think that the reactions of the families were you know, at that time, just encompass all of that, you know, the trauma that they'd gone through over those years. And also just not again, not really being given any solid answers as to what it what it was and what was happening. 
Well, that's why it's so interesting when we meet Blaine Gibson, the self-proclaimed adventurer uh, that we're introduced to in your documentary. Can you talk a little bit about how he fits into this story? Yeah, so Blaine is an extraordinary character. He um, uh, he got involved in MH370 uh, around about the sort of first anniversary when he decided that he wanted to go out there and start looking for debris. My love of adventure and travel and solving mysteries came from when I was very young. I've always wanted to go to every country in the world and learn about it and any unsolved mystery anywhere I wanted to be the one to solve it and know about it. He is kind of a, a self-proclaimed adventurer. He models himself a bit on Indiana Jones and he wanted to visit every country in the world. And then he, when he heard about MH370 and he became involved in some of the online groups, he felt that this was something that he could do to try and help the families and also kind of play his part in trying to solve the mystery. So he's obviously found several pieces of debris and some people ask, is Blaine just that good at finding debris or is there another reason for his success? Um, And there's some doubt thrown his way. And I'm wondering, what do you think? You know, Blaine went out there and looked, you know, he, you know, he, nobody had done that. So, um, and he, you know, came across pieces of debris and he had been pointed into, uh, he'd been pointed to the right places to look for that debris. And suddenly I'm like, whoa, what's that? So I walk over and it's this gray triangle and it has no step written on it. You know, he there was a lot of attention around it and he has managed to find, you know, most of the pieces of the debris that have been found. But he has been really one of the only few people that had been out there looking for it. Um, so I think, again, it's kind of how you want to see it. Um, you know, uh, there's there's if you want to see it as some, one person finding all this debris and that being extraordinary or the fact that, you know, there was not that many people looking for it in the first place. I think it sort of depends on what you're personal theories are as to what's happened. You know, it strikes me the one thing he has in common with your Tom Knocker, your documentary, is that like who we perceive as, quote, experts and who people are willing to listen to and believe. Right. And, you know, he's on the other hand, willing to listen to people who are giving him clues and no one else is listening to those people who are saying, look right here on my beach where all of this debris is is floating up and the families really seem to have belief in him, right? They do. They definitely do. And I think that's because he's doing something. Um, You know, I think they didn't feel the authorities were really doing very much looking for for debris or anything like that. And actually they saw Blaine as somebody that was going out there and doing something for them, trying to find, you know, answers. Um, and, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of the next of kin have got a really good relationship with Blaine. Um, and, um, you know, he still looking, you know, he's still out there and he's still trying to, um, you know, find the answers. Do you think there's any way for the families to get some closure without finding the aircraft in a more complete form or some more definitive proof that this, these pieces of debris are from this aircraft? I think it's a really difficult one. I think, you know, I don't think they'll ever have closure until the aircraft is found. But I think that they still have an awful lot of questions, which they would like answered. Um, and I think that if I think they feel that if they could have the search resumed, if we, you know, we can continue to look 
for the plane and that they can have dialogue and, and their questions answered, then I think, that, as I, I think I'll come back to what I said at the beginning, their biggest fear is that this is just forgotten about and swept under the carpet. And to be in a place where you just say, oh, that was tragic, sorry, you've got to move on. They can't do that. And you, you, I just can't imagine not having answers and never knowing what what would have happened to my to a loved one i just i just can't i can't imagine that trauma Louise, MH370 is now on Netflix, obviously, and loads and loads of people are now watching it. And I'm wondering why you think an open-ended mystery like this is so fascinating to people like this. Is it because in today's world, we're walking around with computers in our pockets, we're just not used to not having answers to questions like this? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the greatest aviation mystery of all time. And it was only 2014 that this happened. You know, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago. We're talking about the modern world where we have, where we had iPhones and satellites and radars and tracking. And it's extraordinary that in this day and age that we can, we are nine years on from this tragic event and have no idea where that plane is. And I think that there's so many unanswered questions and so many things that we just don't know. And in today's world, that is so rare. You know, there's always, we can always seem to find the answers. We always need to, to, to find evidence and we can put things together. So to have so little, I think it's just so extraordinary that that's what draws people into MH370, the story. Well, you really did service to the mystery and service to the families at the center of it. Thank you so much for making this documentary and thanks for talking to me about it, Louise. Thank you. It's been really nice to chat to you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Louise Malkinson. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Raiders On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 